0: Father, ask that you would still our hearts, invigorate our minds. Lord, I ask that you give me clarity of word. Father, speak to each one of us individually that which you want us to hear. Bring your word of peace, healing, restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to look at a subject that impacts all of us some of the time and quite often, a lot of the time, and it's the way that people treat us. I want to look at our thought life um, and the way we can take more responsibility for our thoughts, for our responses, and for our reactions to how people treat us and to what happens to us. So Paul writes in Romans, in Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I want to look at renewing our minds today. I believe this is one of the most important subjects that's covered in the New Testament. Um, When we get get born again, our spirits become new creatures but our bodies and our souls don't yet. So when the new creation comes, when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, we will get a new resurrection body. And our eternal spirit that we have now when we're born again will be in that new eternal body, and our souls will no longer be affected by the sin in the world Our fallen bodies, and finally, our soul will be set, we'll just have the freedom and release to be how God intended it to be, how we would have been if there hadn't been the fall. And we will be able to be like Jesus. However, until that time, our bodies and souls should be, need to be influenced by our spirit. Our born-again spirit. Our soul, which is our mind and our emotions, should be on a journey of sanctification. You've probably heard the word sanctification. It's a nice theological word. And it really means becoming increasingly like Jesus. Being conformed, shaped into the image of Christ. Paul said in Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be f- the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Our, our journey of sanctification is one where we are increasingly conformed, shaped to be like Christ. I, I'm really into science. I love science. And I particularly love science when it starts to discover things that have already been revealed in Scripture, when it finally catches up with the truth. The first three years of a child's life are critical for the emotional development of a person. And apparently, by the time we are five, our responses to the world are pretty much fixed. And it used to be thought that once something was fixed in our mind, that was it. Once our neural pathways were formed, they couldn't change. But science has now discovered something called neuroplasticity, where our brain is plastic. It can can be molded, it can be formed, it can be changed. And this is science catching up with Paul, because Paul said we could transform our minds. They're not fixed the reason this is such an important subject in the New Testament is that whilst our spirits are born again, our soul is still in the same fallen state. So we can go through life with the responses of a five-year-old, which is not good, or we can intentionally allow our born-again spirit to influence our soul and have our minds and emotions to be transformed to become increasingly like Christ. If we don't engage in that process, we will still get to heaven, but it could be a rough ride. If you go through life reacting and responding like a five-year-old, it's gonna be rough for you, it's gonna be rough for other people. It's one thing to realize this. It's fine for me to stand up here and tell you, hey, this is something that we can do, but how do we achieve it? Do we just sit, gaze at our navel, and ask God to transform us? Well, I believe it's like many things. God wants to take us on a journey. He doesn't just do that. He takes us on a journey as we learn with him. If you look at Romans, look at the Romans 12 passage, the first thing to notice about this verse is Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says to Timothy, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Whilst the two words for pattern are slightly different in the Greek, they both have the same meaning. They both mean the form, the outward shape. So Paul says there is a pattern of this world, and there is also a pattern of sound teaching. He instructs us not to be conformed to one, the pattern of this world, but to be conformed to the other, pattern of sound teaching. And when the Bible uses the phrase, this world, it means sin. So that's that's the language. This world is sin. I'd like to say that reality Is binary. So binary is one or zero, on or off. Reality is black or white. It's either God or not God. There's no grey area. We can often fall into thinking there's God, there's sin, and then there's this kind of grey area in between with where we can get away with things. Um, We can't get away with things. (coughs) Reality is binary. It's either sin or it's of God. And we're not entitled to our opinion. We're not even entitled to our humble opinion. It's either God or it's sin. And I want to look this morning particularly at an area where we can be on that journey with God, that journey of transformation of our minds. I want to look at judgments. So, in Luke six thirty-seven to 38, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is pretty clear language. So what is a judgment and why is Jesus so strong about this? To understand, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden where there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came and tempted Eve and Adam and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan said, you will become like God. And we all know how that worked out. Not a good choice. Desiring wisdom in itself is not a bad thing. So, Solomon gave, uh, God gave Solomon a choice in a dream. You can have anything. And he chose wisdom. And God really commended him. And said, I'll give you everything else as well because you chose wisdom. So, this, the desire for wisdom is not in itself a bad thing. And... In, if you look through the Proverbs, there's lots of exhortations to seek wisdom. So, why was what Adam and Eve did so wrong? Well, they sought to get wisdom from a created object. In Proverbs, wisdom is personified it's a, it's a she, it's a person. And um, actually, it, it's not a thing, it's a who. And whilst it's feminine is a feminine word in the Hebrew. Actually, when you read through, wisdom is Jesus because wisdom was there when creation was formed and Jesus was with God when creation was formed. So, it isn't a what. It isn't a thing. It's a who and the who is Jesus. So, the problem was Adam and Eve sought to get it from a thing, not from a person, not from God. Solomon sought to get it from God. He asked God, you give me wisdom. Adam and Eve went and took it, tried to take it. So in the garden, man was given the ability to know good and evil, but separated from the true source of wisdom, God. And boy, do we use it. We look at people and we think we know their motives. We think we know their intent, what's in their heart, and we make a pronouncement about it, and that is what a judgment is. However, Adam and Eve, and us, we did not become like God. God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He s- He knows everything. He sees everything. He is everywhere. He is all powerful. We are not. In case you haven't noticed. Sorry. Sometimes I have to state the uh, obvious. So we do not see everything, so we don't know what goes on in a person's heart. This is why Scripture tells us not to judge. By judging, we're actually setting ourselves up as a God of our own personal world. We say, I know. But we don't because we don't really truly see. And the Bible's very clear that God is the only true judge, not us. So, Because a judge is someone who can pronounce a penalty for a crime, and only God can do this. So I want to look at the damage judging can cause us, and that is not even taking into account the fact that Jesus says, the measure which we use will be used for us. So when we stand in front of Jesus on the judgment day, the measure we have used is the one he will use to us. So actually, we'd be really, really wise to use a generous, merciful, loving measure because then that is the measure that will be used for us. So it's quite a wise thing to do to listen to Scripture. So there are three things that we can fall into judging. God, ourselves, and other people. And I want to look at the dangers of each of these, particularly around the subject of what happens to us in our lives, what we experience. So in Luke 17, 1-4, Jesus says, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The word stumble means to cause offense in, Greek, in the Greek. Jesus also says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And in John 16:33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus is clearly saying things that cause us offence are bound to come, and we will face troubles in this world. How we deal with these things can make or break our lives. If we have the mindset of, now I'm a Christian, nothing bad will happen to me, when something does, or when someone offends us, or things don't go to plan, then we must be careful not to judge God. The religious mind thinks that trouble comes only to those who deserve it. So, religion is something that Satan takes to interfere with relationship by making things Rules. So religion is rules. What God wants is relationship. And Satan will always try and take rules to interfere with relationship. And that's that's religion. So the religious mind thinks that trouble only comes to those who deserve it, those who have broken the rules. Not so. Jesus said trouble will come. If we think in a religious way, When trouble comes, we start asking, What did I do wrong? We can start looking for how to modify our behavior. This is just trying to manipulate God and starts to look more and more like witchcraft. Our behavior can become our lucky charm. If I behave the right way, things will go well for me. If we do judge God, we can find ourselves thinking, If God loved me, this wouldn't have happened. This can lead us to a conclusion of, God doesn't love me. And we start to feel rejected by God, and this causes us to draw back from him right at the time when we need to be drawing closer to him. When something's happened, the disappointment, if we have a religious mindset, can cause us to draw back instead of going towards God. And we see this religious thinking in the disciples talking with Jesus in John 9, 1-3. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. How we react to situations in our lives is our choice. Do we respond knowing the truth about God revealed by Jesus, or do we start to doubt his loving nature? Viktor Frankl was a Jew, who lived through Auschwitz concentration camp. He wrote a book chronicling his horrific experiences there called Man's Search for Meaning. And he comments that when everything had been taken from him, he says, what alone remains is the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. I'll read that again. What alone remains is the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. The guards could strip him of everything, but they couldn't take away his freedom to choose his attitude in those circumstances. We can choose. Do we conform to the pattern of this world or the pattern of the gospel? Any perception or belief about God that is inconsistent with what Jesus showed us through his life and teaching must be rejected. Anything we cannot reconcile, we must leave alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, don't judge anything before it's time. Our desperate need to understand is another outworking of eating that fruit in the Garden of Eden. We need to know. As Paul says in Corinthians, now we see through a glass darkly. Then, meaning in the future when we're with God, we will see face to face. There are things that we may well never understand in this life, but one day we will see and understand. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul references asking God to help him and remove some circumstances from his life. And God said, my grace is... Is sufficient he was not saying no to Paul's request for help he was saying the circumstances don't have to change the power to live above the control of life circumstances and people's judgments is found in my grace I fully understand that this can be difficult our walk with Jesus is not supposed to be just I it's supposed to be we not I, we. <coughs> if there are things that have happened to you that have led you to make judgments about God and his love for you, please talk to someone who can pray this through with you. Don't, you don't have to deal with this on your own. I know in this church you have people who are trained in Zozo. Maybe sign up and spend some time with someone who's had some training and help, so they can pray through with you and help you be set free, help you have your mind transformed. It's not I, it's we. And this, this, can, this is something that is often very useful to have other people involved with. The second on my list is we can judge ourselves. Satan will always try to attack our identity. It was the first thing he did to Jesus, if you are the son of God. We have to be careful not to buy into his lies and start to believe things about ourselves that are just not true. That is why we're very clear in all the life churches we are not sinners struggling to try and be good. We are saints who can fall and sin. But sinner is not who we are, we are saints. Any judgment we make about ourselves that is not consistent with what God God says about us has to be addressed or we will never be released to be who he created us to be. The response we choose to the circumstances in our life can have a massive impact on our thriving. Um, A great example of this I found in a secular book by a secular psychologist called Angela Duckworth. And her book is called Grit and the Power of Passion and Perseverance. And this is a quote from her book. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I am laying bricks. The second says, I am building a church. The third says, I am building the house of God. The first has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling. Everyone has the same occupation but their subjective experience of how they themselves viewed their work couldn't be more different. It is not that some have jobs and others' careers and still others' callings. Instead, what matters is whether the person doing the work believes that laying down the next brick is just something that has to be done or instead something that will lead to further personal success or finally, work that connects the individual to something far greater than self. It means you can go from job to career to calling all without changing your occupation. Have you judged yourself that you are merely laying bricks in whatever you are currently doing? Or are you building the house of God that is your life? If we have our mind transformed and know the will of God in our lives, it will be so much easier to see where we are as part of the journey of the call of God in our lives. We will see we are connected to something far greater than ourselves. Remember, this is a secular book. But she's discovered a truth, an eternal truth, a spiritual truth. The final area is judging others. And this is an area that can lead to great suffering in our lives, suffering in our lives, judging other people. If something painful happens, it is often momentary. It is when we pass a judgment about the person who has caused us that pain that suffering can start and that suffering can last for long periods of time. Why and how does this happen? There's been a lot of research done on memories and how they form. How do we form our memories in our brain? And as you might expect, it's quite a complicated process. But what is known is that it's very hard for us to form a totally accurate accurate memory about an event. This is seen when eyewitnesses to the same event give such disparate accounts. You know, if you have people see the same thing, you ask them about it later, completely different stories. How it makes us feel becomes ingrained in our memory. So what happens is when we replay the event over in our minds, we remember how that event made us feel. We think, what happened? How did it make me feel? And that feel, how it made us feel, becomes ingrained in our memory. The pain then gets locked into our memory. In fact, going forward, how it made us feel when we remembered it the first time becomes more important than what actually happened. (laughs) Our interpretation becomes more important than the actual events. So, if we are judging a person's motives and ascribing intent to what they did to us, this becomes part of the memory in an amplifying feedback mechanism. I recently read that sleep plays an important part in our memory formation. It actually helps decrease the emotional content of our memories. However, if we have formed a judgment about the motive and intent of someone who has caused us pain, all we are doing is constantly reinserting that emotional content back into our memories. And the pain stays real and immediate. We don't allow our memories to heal through the natural processes God decreed. If, we're not able to, if we are able to stop judging and stop playing the event over and over in our minds, then the pain can heal and we will avoid suffering. When we pass a judgment, we're deciding what the person's motive was for the pain they caused us. Why did they do it? So let me give you an example. My good friend John, I have warned him I'm using him as a subject. So say John is walking down the street, and he sees me walking towards him. And he goes to say, hi, Simon. And I just go sailing straight past him. You know, sometimes you're just walking down the street, and you see someone, and they just, you know didn't see you know ignored me and john react can react by thinking simon completely blanked me i knew he didn't like me and john walks on feeling completely rejected and this plays on his mind why doesn't simon like me what have i done wrong the next time he sees me in church he subconsciously doesn't want to be rejected again so he avoids me or he even thinks I'll show him. And when I go to greet him, he walks straight on by. This can be how relationships break down. What John didn't know was I was walking towards the sun and I was dazzled. And also I was deep in thought preparing my talk for this morning, playing it through my mind. I was engrossed. I just didn't see him. So the godly response for John would be one of two things. He either gives me the benefit of the doubt, or he does what it says in the Bible, as we saw earlier in Luke 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. We are told to rebuke our offender. Now, rebuke, we have to understand what the Bible means by rebuke. And rebuke comes from two Greek words. The word upon and a word that means to fix a value or to honor and it means to make a person aware of the value of their actions this is what you have this is what you have done and this is how it has affected me make a person aware of the value of their actions so john can come to me and say he was really hurt when i ignored him and i can then apologize and explain i just didn't see him then everything is cleared up and relationship is preserved. In a situation like this, you have, of course, got to be open to the fact that you might just be oversensitive. And the responsibility to preserve relationship goes both ways. But say in another situation, I was genuinely spiteful to John. Then what? The same applies. He needs to come to me and explain that he was hurt by my behavior. I then have a chance to repent. Many times in life, people are just unaware of the effect of their behavior. I might just not realize the way I was behaving, the impact it was having on John. We think that people are doing something to us or because of us. This just isn't the case. They are so self-absorbed that we are just collateral damage as they move through life. Our goal should be to bring the offender to repentance. The goal cannot be punishment. If they reply, I didn't know, they get the chance to be more sensitive in their behavior. True healing happens when everyone benefits from the event. When a person offends us, we can take it as an opportunity to experience the grace of God. We can grow in love and mercy. In fact, our sharing how they hurt us might be the wake-up call they need to actually start dealing with their behavior. We can be the victim of the pain and hurt in someone's life. We are just the unintended victim in their drive-by emotional shooting. The pain in their life, they're just like, and we get in the way. It wasn't aimed at us. They weren't intending to hurt us. We're just the victim of The hard thing for us to, to realize is that we're not imp- that important to most people. They're not actually paying that much attention to us. It's all about them. Um, when I was a teenager, I was terribly <coughs> self-conscious. I, was, I just hated walking into a room where there were people because I just thought, everybody's looking at me, everybody's thinking about me, everybody's making, forming some opinion about me. And however, I, as I got slightly older, I realise that actually, no one's even noticing me. You, no one's paying any attention to me. And actually, if you want people to pay attention to you, you've got to make quite an effort. Um, top tip, people are so absorbed or self-absorbed. If you're at a party or a gathering and you're talking to someone, ask them about themselves. Get them to talk about themselves. And at the end, they'll go away thinking, wow, He's really interesting. You haven't told them anything about yourself. They've just talked about themselves, which is their favorite subject. And they think you're—they will go away thinking you're really interesting. That's just a top tip. So anyway, back to John and my slightly tempestuous relationship. What if I continually behave spitefully towards John, despite his repeated sharing of how it hurts him? He shouldn't make a judgment that I'm a spiteful person. But he can see the fruit of my life and make a choice to put a boundary up to avoid putting himself back in the position where I mistreat him. This is wisdom. For him to say, Simon is a spiteful person, is to pronounce a judgment on my character. To say to himself, Simon keeps on hurting me so I I will avoid him, is wisdom. We must be careful not to fall into the thought process. If I can see the offender pay the price for his crime, I will find closure. For some reason, we believe that the suffering of another individual will somehow stop our pain and suffering, but it never works that way. No matter how great the price the offender pays, it has no bearing on the pain of the offended person. Any statement of you are lazy, always late, forgetful, is is a judgment. We're saying something about their character, not just commenting on something they have done. Identifying what someone did is not a judgement. It's merely an observation. It is when we assume to know why someone did what he did that we have entered into a judgement. Something that is really important to realise is, it is not the intensity of the pain you feel in a situation but the significance you attach to what happens that determines how powerful the effect it can have on your life. So it's not the intensity, it's the significance that we attach to it that will affect us. One person could have an extremely intense experience with very few destructive results, while another could go through an apparently harmless experience And because of the significance attached to it, it can have devastating results. The attitude we take to the pain in our lives can have massive impacts, not just on our emotions, but on our bodies and our health. Last year, I was very fortunate to um, be at a conference, and I heard a talk by a lady called Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for her work on something called telomeres. These... In our chromosomes, we have, at the end of our chromosome, we have these things called telomeres. And you know on your shoelace, there's that little hard bit, and that little hard bit stops your shoelace unraveling. And a telomere is on the end of your chromosome, and it does the same thing. It stops your chromosome unraveling. But as you get older, the telomere gets shorter, and shorter, and shorter, and shorter, and eventually it's gone, and the chromosome unravels. And that is an integral part of the aging process. So it's quite important for all of us. Um, Elizabeth Blackburn was talking about her current research into the environmental effects on our telomeres. So what we experience, what impact does that have on how these telomeres shorten? And her team have have been working with individuals under high levels of stress and looking at what impact it has on these telomeres. And what they're finding is that stress causes them to degrade much more quickly so that the, people, the aging effect accelerates. However, what they found, which surprised them, is that two people under almost exactly the same stress events can have very different responses to these events. Those who have a very negative response to their circumstances have telomeres much shorter than those with a more positive response to very similar circumstances. So the attitude we bring to our circumstances has a very measurable physical effect at the molecular level in our bodies and will impact how fast we age. Um, Another quote from Angela Duckworth's book Grit shows this, optimists are just as likely to encounter bad events as pessimists. Statistically true. Where they diverge is in their explanations. Optimists always search for temporary and specific causes for their suffering in a situation, whereas whereas pessimists assume permanent and pervasive causes. believe that permanent and pervasive causes are to blame. Permanent and pervasive explanations for adversity turn minor complications into major catastrophes. An optimist thinks, this is a one-off event caused by this or that situation. But a pessimist thinks, this is how my life is. Whatever the situation, this is going to keep on happening to me. Interpretations, rather than the objective events themselves, give rise to our feelings and our behavior. We might not be able to control the first thought that springs into our minds but we can certainly choose what the second thought is. We can't help the first thing. What we think after that, we have a lot of choice about. What we dwell on will influence our memories. If we dwell on pain, it will influence our memories. I have a a really good friend in Bath called Edmund, very, very wise guy and he's, he's just turned 70. Brain the size of a small planet. And he said to me, We can't stop birds flying over our heads, but we can stop it nesting in our hair. It's a choice. In 2 Corinthians 10 4 to 5, Paul says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It can be tempting to think we should be applying these weapons to others, but the thing is, we can never change another person. The only person we can change is ourselves. We should be applying this verse to ourselves and take captive our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Be conformed, not to the pattern of this world, but to godly teaching. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Stop judging. Release your judgments of God. Release the judgments on yourself and release your judgments on others. Start approaching life as an optimist. Of all the people in the world, we have the best reason to be optimists. We have a God who loves us so much he died for us to restore relationship with us. We have taken the opportunity to be part of the new creation and we are born again into that new creation. We have the Holy Spirit given to us as a comforter. We are part of the body. It's not I, it's we. And we have those around us who can support us and help us. We should be optimists because we know the end of the story. Whatever happens... And whatever we experience, we know in the end, the lamb wins. Father, I ask that you would take the words I've spoken and make them live in people's hearts to meet their need that you know they need. Father, I ask that you would cause these words to be practical, of use to them. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us this week, bless all of us, bless these people, bless those who are part of this congregation, but not here this uh, this morning. Lord, keep us, strengthen us, bless us, cause your light to shine upon us. And Lord, give us your peace and give us your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.